Hey everyone, welcome to SumZero. Uh, you know, as as you all know, we love we love talking to uh, professional money managers who manage their own capital, and um, you know, love love to kind of uh, uh, shed light on um, stocks that are not not super well known or, or maybe talked about so much in in sort of mainstream media. Um, today we have uh, Roly Saxena, who's the founder of Drona Capital. Uh, it's a fourteen million dollar long only fund. Uh, she's based in in London, actually, but it's a U.S. focused fund, um, and uh, we're going to be talking about Mettler Toledo today. today um, sort of a mid cap name, um, and just quickly on Drona Capital. Drona's, uh, you know, again, as I'm saying, a long only fund, long only fund, uh, seeking to invest in high quality businesses uh, at a discount to intrinsic value. Um, they make their investment decisions based on historical financial and operational performance, um, and in companies that have a defensible competitive advantage. Uh, that they've demonstrated over a long period of time, often exceeding decades, and they put a high emphasis on avoidance of risk. Uh, uh, Roly has a concentrated portfolio. I think she only has 17 positions, uh, mostly small mid caps uh, with a median market cap of about $7 billion, uh, low turnover. And I think it's interesting that um, she's only sold six stocks in the last seven years, which is pretty incredible, especially uh, in today's sort of very um, high churn day trader environment that we see. Um, you know, with, with a lot of other folks. Um, Roly, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you on Sum Zero. Um, I, I tried giving a, a basic intro to Drona Capital, but but maybe you can, you know, I think I think our listeners would love to hear in your own words kind of what your sort of investing philosophy is and, and how you started Drona before we get into Mettler. Yeah, sure. Um, so so thanks so much for the introduction, Divya. It's really nice to join you guys. And it's interesting to see that you're talking about me being different. And obviously, Drona is a very differentiated um, fund, um, you know, considering how less we sell. Um, so we invest in long-only, we are a long-only equity fund, uh, investing in US-listed stocks. And this is probably the last time I'm going to use the word stock, um, because we are thinking of investing in businesses rather than stocks talk and that's what kind of differentiates us. Um, so businesses with ha which have sustainable competitive advantage over several years. And um, these businesses we define as high quality as the businesses which have very high return on invested capital. That is one of our key criteria that they are industry leaders. So most of the portfolio companies are number one or number two in the industry they operate in, which is again, very rare to find um, they have a very long track record of financial and operating performance. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, they would have beaten um, the, the peer group or the industry over 10, 15 years. So we do not look for a one or two year data. We look for 10, 15 years. If it's a cyclical company, it will probably be even longer than that. Um, so it is a very stringent process of selecting these businesses. And obviously, that's why we haven't invested in too many companies. We have been operating for over 10 years now, and we have only bought now about 30 companies. We have sold 10 of them. Um, our sale was probably not right to sell as well. So ideally for us, we call it a business because we want to buy a business and hold it forever. This is our strategy. Um, one of the key elements of our strategy is also avoidance of risk. So um, we look for um, companies with very strong balance sheet uh, with literally no leverage. So most of our companies are net cash companies. Um, they're operating in very stable, you know, industries, not really taking a risk of M&A or transformational risk. Um, so most of them are growing organically. 
and also they don't operate in fast uh, fast changing tech industry unfortunately so um, very stable sort of um, industry which you might even want to call boring um, the reason we really do that is because um, we do not predict what's going to happen in the future we are mostly looking at the past and if you are investing in a stable industry but a growing industry um, then you don't really need to worry about what's going to happen in terms of technology going forward. Um, and so it is a sustainable sort of a business model. If it's worked in the past, it is it would tend to work in the future. That is the philosophy, right? Um, in yeah, terms I, I, of... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, you know, I mentioned uh, your philosophy as a differentiator just because a lot of people talk about investing in companies forever or... or longer term investing but the reality is that not a lot of funds actually do that i mean i feel like a lot of funds have or they maybe they intend to invest in the long term but then something happens they have to sell out of a position you know in a much shorter time frame uh and and then of course you know when you think about um sort of the tools that are available to investors today you know today uh, in terms of charting tools and um, you think about the media, I feel like uh, certainly the information that people are fed and the tools that people are given are yes. uh, the types of tools that drive trading, not really kind of that longer term investing. And I think there's a lot of emotion that drives people to make, uh, you know, let's say quick decisions when maybe they'd be better off spending a little time doing further diligence. Anyways, it's kind of refreshing to hear, you know, the kind of your you know, your, your take on things and, and yes. uh, how you think about turnover as well. Absolutely. So I think it's a lot, a lot of people, as you say, just say these words that we are long-term, but they're not. But for me, I would say that you look at the fund, our fund has been in, existing for over 12 years now, and we have really not sold. So, you know, company, we are going to talk about Medellin, we bought it in 2010, and we're still holding holding on to that business. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my write-up at some zero, it is still a great hold. Um, I was reading, um, you know, I, I write investor letters every every quarter to my investors. And I was reading my 2012 letter for Metro Toledo. And there I mentioned that Metro Toledo's return has been 250%. So a lot of funds would say that, okay, it's 250, let's sell it. But we, we analyze the company. We see their competitive mode. Are they continuing to do what they said they're going to do? And is their, um, you know, is, is, is their mode still valid? And is the financial still valid? Is their management still doing great job. So we continue to hold it um, because if you think about it, um, you know, if you're looking at a valuation of company, now we buy something when it is cheap. So price to earnings for Mettler was about 12X when we bought it. Now it is about 35X. Um, so the, if, if a company has earning potential, these businesses have great earning potential because to be a number one or a number two in an industry is really not easy. And uh, we look at the qualitative side of it, looking at, you know, why that business is really doing so well, why it is doing better than the competitors. There are reasons related to maybe the scale, maybe the brand, which is one of the biggest thing, um, recurring revenue model, which we can talk about in Metla case, a distribution network built over a long period of time. Um, this sort of thing is irreplaceable and it creates a huge barrier for anybody else to get in. Um, so temperamentally, you can say that somebody, if they don't have that, um, commitment to the business. This is why we call it a business. I 
feel like I'm an owner of the business. And then if I'm an owner of the business, if the quality of business does not go down, then there's no reason for me to sell a business. Think about all the big businesses around the world. You know, the multimillionaires are the people who own businesses, right? Unfortunately, people don't think of it like that. Um, and and it's, it's if, if a company has that earning power, one should not sell it. But temp, it's so it's more about a temperament game than anything else. And I have also done mistakes. It's not like I didn't do it. You know, in the first few years, I was selling a lot more. This is what I mentioned in the beginning. And most of the, those sales were, in, were wrong because now I look at those businesses and they've done pretty well. So I don't think I should have sold them. But, you know, I also kind of got carried away. So it's a lot about maintaining that temperament, having that commitment to understanding that business. And it does take a long time to get, get there. So there are about 5,500 companies listed in US, um, you know, stock market. And we have only 100 or 150, which kind of tick all the boxes what we're looking for for a business to invest in. So they're very, very stringent rule we follow. And um, the other thing I would want to say is we really keep to that discipline. We do not waver from the discipline. So I wouldn't say that I like this business, but you know what? It's netted to EBITDA is three times. Let, let me just invest it and just see how it goes. I don't do that. I don't say, okay, ROIC is 10% and it doesn't matter. You know, it's fine. It probably catch up. It did well last, um, you know, 10 years back. It might do it. It's not like that. So we mostly reject businesses rather than buy them. So again, once you're spending so much time looking at a good, good company, um, it just doesn't make sense to sell it unless it's it's done something really bad. Yeah, the management I, has done, screwed I, it up or something. Sorry. I think I think your point about it being a game of temperament is is really well said. Can you just yes. uh, again before we get into Metler, can, can we talk a little bit about some of those? You don't have to go through all of them, but maybe some of the key metrics that you know you really don't waver from uh, to give. Sure. That, that's, that's a very good question. That's a very, very good question. So one of the key metrics we look at is not the growth, not a company with very high growth in the last 10, 15 years. It's great if they have that growth. They should be beating the, in, uh, the industry or the peer group probably on the top line. But the fundamental criteria for us is return invested capital. So, you know, companies with a low capital intensive who can use less capital and make more returns, those companies are highly cash generative. Um, they don't need a lot of leverage and therefore their, you know, they, their balance sheet is very strong. Um, that's one criteria. Second is consistency of operating margin or probably growing, which is even better, which is again the case with Metal Toledo. They have an expanding operating margin which shows their pricing power. Um, but consistency is important. Um, so, you know, that kind of tells us that the company is doing well. And of course, EPS growth at a reasonable rate. Um, capital, how, do, how, how disciplined are they in the capital allocation? That is one of the key criteria as well. So a lot of the companies, so what we do is we read 10, 15, 20 years of companies annual report 10K. Um, you know, calls for the last 10 years, what the, what the management, what the CEO is talking about. Are they talking about prudence, discipline? These are the words we really look at on the qualitative side uh, when we're investing and uh, not M&A, inorganic, you know, buying and things like that. So, so it's immediately clear to us why that business is doing well, why that return of invested capital of over 50% is achievable by a business. So they, you know, so that it's not very aggressive sort of 
um, capital allocation. Um, they are very, very prudent. Most of these businesses, they grow very slowly, um, but uh, they're careful where they put their money and therefore their return invest capital keeps growing over time and therefore the earning power goes goes over time, right? So, I so, think so if a company that, meets those criteria, what, is there a valuation um, sort of uh, range that you would generally be comfortable you know, yes. or, or maybe a cap on value on multiple that you would you would sort of stay below if a company is sort of consistently growing EPS and has decent, you know, consistent margins and all the other things you talked about. Yeah, so it's not a real science, right, to kind of figure out like this is the this is the real value of a business. Um, we waver a bit here and there in terms of the valuation, but definitely it is a value investing. So we are not going to pay too much too much for a business. If we were, then I would have bought all the 150 companies in our portfolio. So we only have 30. That's the reason because they haven't they haven't been cheap. And therefore, in a way, yeah. we are very contrarian. So when most of the people are selling, we are buying. So in COVID times, we're most active. Again, that's a temperament thing. Um, uh, when COVID hit, everybody was selling. And I was asking my investors, can you give me more money? Because these businesses are so good that we should buy them. And that's simply because, you know, they have very strong balance sheet. They are market leaders. They'll probably do better than many others who would not exist after COVID. And, uh, and there's no reason not to buy those businesses. We just have to have that, um, you know, commitment or the word, the right word for it. But, you know, just kind of say that, you know, you, the, these businesses are going to do well over time. So value in terms of valuation, I would say price to earnings, which is historically slightly lower than the historical price to earnings ratio, lower than the industry. That is kind of rough, rough ballpark. Um, yes. you know, we haven't invested in many businesses which have PE of over 20 times earnings. Um, mostly they're 15 to 20 times earnings. That's when we get it. Um, but also you can look at the, gap with their with their valuation when you know over the over, averaging over a long period of time so our recent one of our recent investment in invest align technology um their long-term pe is about 42 and they were available to us at 22 so we did end up paying little extra little more for them i think i should have bought more of it because it's jumped twice since we bought it but that's that should not be said. No. Good <laughs> problem to have. Yeah. Um, yes. So let's let's. I know uh, Mettler's been in your portfolio for a decade. So maybe we start with that. Uh, yes. Just tell us about the business. I know not everyone is familiar with uh, their their actual products, yeah. but if you can just pick over what they do, that'd be a good start. Sure. So Mettler Toledo is actually a seventy-five-year-old business. Um, a, a guy called Eckhard Mettler in Switzerland. He came up with a single pan balance before the labs used to have two pans, and that's how the innovation started. And it's a very, very old company. Um, if you really go to any airport or any lab and look at the weighing balance, it will be a metal balance. It's as simple as that. So they are present in most of the labs across the globe. Um, they are also in industrial application. It's the largest installed base of weighing instruments across the world. People don't know it, but it's, um, so they do things like pipettes, titrators, um, you know, weighing machines, which are used from small size, you know, mi micro nano size to, you know, many kilograms. Um, that is what they do. And they, it's one of the um, very globally diversified business models. So they have about 40% of business coming from US, um, about 30 from Europe now, and little over 30 from um, emerging markets. 
Um, they have presence, direct presence in 40 countries and indirect presence in over 140 countries. So the products are used across industries. So in pharmaceutical, your food and beverages, chemicals, biotech, anywhere where there's a lab, academic institutions, anywhere where there's R&D and quality control requirement. So if you think about a metla, um, metla company, so what is the investment thesis of this business? Uh, if you think of the products they do, they really do these small products, which are small, but they're very critical to the customer's process. So if you look at a pharma, if they're coming out with a new um, you know, medicine, they need to really measure accurately all the, all the things which go in that medicine. And they don't want to have anything go wrong. So they wouldn't want to have, you know, they would want to use the best products. And um, Mettler has this brand for 75 years. Uh, previously in Europe, Mettler was balance. Balance was equivalent to Mettler, like you'd say rocks and paper in lab, if you ask them. So it is a brand which is associated with reliability and accuracy and customers need that. So it is critical to the customer's process. At the same time, it doesn't cost them much to have it because it doesn't cost much to have a pipette or a titrator in your lab. Um, so therefore, um, it gives them a high barrier to entry uh, for any competitor. And that's why they have been number one or number two product for all of their products, almost 75% of the products over several years now. So it's a huge barrier to entry for any new entrant coming in, in the market. It is a very fragmented market. There are a lot of um, smaller players, local players who play in various parts of the world, uh, but their accuracy is much better than any, anybody else. So once they go into a market, they're able to gain market share because of, um, because of the product, the quality of the product, which is there. And most of these customers basically do not mind paying. And uh, this is why Mettler is a great business to own. And that, and if you think about it over time, if you think COVID or whatever, or mac any macro news, what's happening in the world, people will still need in the lab equipments to be, you know, measuring equipments, right? And uh, they would not mind paying a little more for these. Um, and and I guess, I guess they haven't done badly over the COVID time. In fact, they've taken market share from a lot of other local players um, in this time. And their um, gross margin has increased almost by nine, 900 basis points from the time we invested to now. And that's possible because their customers really straight, they really don't care about uh, the price too much. And interestingly, what they do is they do innovation. So they come up with new, uh, slightly better technologically product or accurate over time. So I did talk about initially when I was saying that I don't invest in technology related company, actually, um, it is untrue because uh, most of the companies which we invest in, they're highly technologically advanced in the industry they operate in. So they come up with the best product, most accurate, most well-connected. They have this LabX product, which connects all the products in, in a lab. And so therefore the productivity of the lab in, increases, the cost goes down and things like that. So they have you know, that capability. Um, and at the same time, they have a huge service team because they're the largest install base, millions of, you know, of their weighing machines installed across the globe. They're able to reach these customers for recalibration. So that's again, a recurring revenue model 
So this is what we look for. And anywhere where you can get recurring revenue. So service is a great recurring revenue business. At the same time, if you think about it, they go to the customer's um, site um, and they do the servicing and they can talk to the customers and ask them, you know, what's going well with the product or whatnot. And that leads to the innovation of new products. So typically, you know, if you're closer to a customer, you're able to come up with a better product. Again, that's where a barrier to entry for a new um, new competitor is because what they get from the customers, the others cannot most of the time. And therefore they come up with the next better product, whatever the customers require. So it's almost like a partnership. Again, they don't, it's a very low risk business because none of the customers are more than 1% of their business. So it's a very well diversified across industries, across geography in that term. But service is a great business. It builds loyalty with the customers. It also, um, you know, typically these customers will end up buying more from them. So again, um, high competitive advantage. And if you look at their numbers and you look, wow, their revenue has increased 6% over the last um, 10 years, their EBIT margin has increased by, um, I think 900 basis points I mentioned, their EBIT has increased by 11% and EPS has increased by 17%. So you say five, 10, 15, it's quite rare to have that sort of expanding, you know, 5% revenue growth, 10% earnings growth, operating margin growth, 15% earnings growth. That's very difficult to you know, attain for any company. And then their return invest capital has grown to about 50%. Um, that's the other thing, they have ex excellent management. So Olivier Filol, who was their um, CEO for 10 years, he just um, retired last year and the new CEO is also excellent. He's done a great job in allocating capital to the right businesses. So when they saw the emerging markets doing well, and of course it's an expanding, market, emerging market, they came, up, came out with products for that market, low cost products, accurate, but still low cost. So even if you go to India or China, they have, they have, by the way, they have presence in China for over 35 years. So, you know, when you talk about risk in China, um, they mentioned in the call that they actually, Chinese people think it's a Chinese company. So they don't think it's an international company. Um, and they had huge- Where, where do they manufacture? They have manufacturing in China as well, sorry? I was going to say, where do they manufacture? You're saying they, they yeah, manufacture? Yeah, so they have, they have, they have. Again, that's that's another part of their cost. So management did very well, and thirty percent of their manufacturing is in low cost um, regions like Mexico. They have a manufacturing plant in Mexico. They were manufacturing in China. They have a couple in Europe. Um, they have in U.S. of course. So all across the world, really, because it's been existing for so long. So the distribution network and their manufacturing is a great advantage for them, right? Because they have been doing it for such a long time. So, so that's what I'm saying. So, so, they, so they have allocated capital in the right business in emerging markets. Um, and they managed to gain share in, in those markets. And if you think about it, it's a very fragmented market. You know, you're play, you are really competing with the local players. And uh, with the local player, if an international brand can give the same price to the customers, the customer would rather go for that. Um, because of the accuracy and reliability, which is the key um, in this particular industry. And everybody wants the best brands, right? Even if it is in India or China, they would want to um, have the best brand and they, they are able to provide. So it's basically, you know, great technologically innovative product, but very simple uh, to understand and um, hold. The second thing is um, they again grow their lab business. So they have lab and industrial. Industrial are like larger scales um, um, and lab businesses are higher growth business and higher margin business. Um, they managed to do that. They have managed to come up with better products in lab over the, over the years. 
Now, one thing to mention here is um, how it's an advantage for them to have, um, you know, a, a, a big, big installed base, which is which gives them a lot of data. So they, they have a lot of data they analyze. They talk about it in all their calls, like they have this Spinnaker sales program where they reach out to um, new, new regions or new customers or have new pricing model set up because they have all this data of the customers and they can see where they need to focus. So that data, again, it's a competitive advantage, not other um, you know, companies can have. So that's, if you think about it, that's a huge barrier. Similarly, the service business, you know, they have only 10 or 15% penetration in service contracts. So they can reach out to customers for cross-selling or for services. And as I said, you build trust and loyalty across the brand through um, reaching out to these, um, you know, um, customers. And again, if I think about it, is it going to stop here? No, because they are, it's a, it, literally, it's a very, they have 2% market share probably across the world, although they're number one or number two. So they can keep expanding. They have built their well position in emerging markets as well. They can keep building on, especially in, if the emerging markets countries start focusing more on, you know, um, lab or, you know, growing their medical business or biopharma. Um, they have they have these products, they have the distribution network to be able to reach to these customers. The other thing is I when I just started investing, when I initially invested and I spoke to um, their uh, Mary Finnegan, who is still their investor head of investor relation, and I was asking her, what is your growth strategy? So typically, um, you know, somebody would say that we want to aggressively grow and have five, 10 percent share every year in a market. And she said, look, we're just looking to grow very slowly. We are just looking for one or two percent point increase every year. And at the same time, we are looking to increase our operating margin over time by cost cutting, by making sure we are smart in where we put in our money, um, you know, how we allocate capital. Um, and that was very interesting for me to hear. Um, so they have this focus, and this was 10 years back, and they talk exactly the same language even today. They haven't changed. They have probably increased their competitive edge by having these um, data, immense amount of data which they have, which they use to target the right kind of customers. Um, so this is why I mentioned in my um, pieces that it's still actually a very good buy, and we are going to so hold it. It's a typical forever hold company for us. So one one thing you said was that even in the markets where they have either number one or number two positioning, their market share is only two percent. Did I hear that right? No. So their their market share in this is probably um, about you know twenty five percent in. So what I meant was two percent is the entire. If you think of the entire industrial world, entire lab across the globe. And it's they have a three billion, three or four billion um, revenue. It's a huge market. So and it is extremely fragmented. So yes, yeah, so it's just it's just covering penetration in terms of a market for global companies high, but it is still very very small. Maybe not two, maybe five. So something like that. So there is still huge potential to grow. Of course, you know a local lab might not go with Metler. That is another question, but they do have the potential. If they can figure out the right products, they will be able to do that in the future. And they yeah, continue they, um, the, the, the like, way the so, sorry the way I think is not what they're going to do in the future, but what they have already done. 
So they have managed to take share. They have the reason they have grown at 6%. The reason they have grown EBIT margin at 10% CAGR over the last 10 years is because they have managed to do it slowly, but you know, um, not too aggressively, as I said, but they have managed to do it. And it's not very, very but easy. Your, 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 your point is that you're comfortable. There's a lot of room for further growth. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, yes, and then what right. would you say are... Um, the biggest risks to the business? I mean, is it macro? Obviously right now we've got a rising rates environment in the US. Um, I, I don't know who the number two or number three players are in the space, but what would you so, say are the biggest risks to your thesis here? Um, so I don't, I mean, it's, it macro can, you can think of macro as a risk, but for them it's not really too much of a risk. So for example, Russia, they had 2% of the business coming from Russia. You know, it's so well diversified. China had COVID. They didn't do that well for the last couple of years in China because of the closures in China. But having said that, they've done pretty well in US and they've done very, very well in some of the European parts of the world. So they're very well diversified. You, you don't see any industrial risk. So, you know, any one particular segment, um, they don't have that much of customer concentration risk. So that risk is really not their macro, yes, short term, um, but I don't see it as a long-term risk. For me, last year, um, the biggest risk was change of management. So their um, the managers, you know, they have a 10 year, um, for 10 long years, Olivier Philol, when we invested, and that's when our antenna was raised. I'm like, oh gosh, they're having a CEO change and the CEO, and I've had companies which have done that, which we can go another time. They've changed CEO, gone aggressive, changed the strategy, but this guy was great. He's just doing exactly what the previous management did. He just talks the same language. So we are very happy. And as I said, that we invest in business and for business, you need to have great managers. You know, we are not running the business, they are running it. So we need to have the right capital allocation strategy with these managers. So we do keep an, our eyes open if they go aggressively and you know, inorganically growing, obviously we'll, we'll look at even selling the business. So we are very aggressive in that term. The moment we do not, understand what's going on, we would sell the business, but right now that's not the risk. But for me, the biggest risk is the CEO really. Do you feel like you need to get to know the board at all? Or, or I mean, I'm just curious if you have any relationship with the management to, to help you get comfortable with their philosophy mm -hmm. and capital So um, they are all publicly listed companies. It's interesting to see that you should spend time with the board or the CEO. But really, most of the information is available. If I need, I can ask for a call. So I have, um, you know, other third parties who can reach out to them. So I, I have the services. And if I really think there is something I want to talk to, I can definitely go and talk to them. But most of the time, I really don't need to um, because I, it is there in the one, we look at the numbers and we see, yes, numbers are great. Then we look at, we read their annual reports. And trust me, there is so much we can read that it's I think more than enough and they probably can't tell you more than what you know we already know so so I you know it is it is something which one can look at but it really would not yeah. affect the way I invest if I talk to this and, CEO um, that way. in terms of the products they sell uh, what degree I'm just curious like what degree of channel checks you run on the actual products I mean obviously you have kind of market shared data but um, I'm just curious if, if you've needed to do further diligence on like specific products or the core products or some of the growthier spots, you know, the growthier, pro the, the newer products that they're 
that they're launching to to increase growth? So it's very difficult to follow that that sort of detailed product based uh, research, right? What we have to go with is what uh, information is available. What they say over the years is they are number one or number two in the industry. They are in each and every product, up to seventy five percent of the product which they do, they are number one or number two. Um, so we go with that. We really, I, I don't know how is it possible for us to go and check on, on that vast level. As I said, we have third parties who provide us that information as well. So they have analysts who go and, you know, go into the market, look at the market. They can maximum look at, you know, how the industry is going, which is again, very difficult because it's very, very fragmented. What they do is not easy to track. Um, so you have to really go with what is, is available and i think in a way i'm happy we are, i'm investing in us because information has to be it's highly regulated industry so if they are saying what they're doing is right then it should be right so they you know that is that is my backup sort of thing um i had something else i wanted to say but kind of forgot so um yeah. and i think uh you know kind of uh, to maybe uh summarize it all um, oh, yeah sorry you're, you're... I, sorry i have i have i have one point which i wanted to make which i did not when you were asking about the new innovations um, it's that they do come up with new products but they that doesn't contribute to majority of the business so the new products is just a good to have so typical um, you know, cycle of replacement for their products is 7 to 8 years so when the next replacement cycle comes they would come up with new features or whatever and then therefore they can charge higher you know, price to the customers, but that's one or two percent of the business. So they do not depend on new products to do well or to do growth. Yes, it's a part of the strategy, but fundamentally what they do is what gives them the uh, real chunk of their revenue. So I would not take it as a risk that if they're not coming up with new products, they're not going to do well. They will be the, they will be the biggest innovators, um, you know, in, in their industry because that's what they do. But um, but that's not their key. The key is their existing business as well. And of course, added. So they spend about five to 6% re research every year. So they've spent about 300 million in the last five years in research, which probably a smaller company will not be able to do. But at the same time, that's not contributing so much to the business. So again, that's a low risk for us, even if it- um, Is there anything about the story that you feel is misunderstood by the markets? Um. You know, we invested in this business when it was $3 billion. Right now it's 30 billion, so it's a 10 bagger for us. Mm -hmm. um, misunderstanding would go in terms of people thinking, oh, it's a boring business and you don't go dig deeper and figure out the um, barrier to entry or competitive edge. So for us, I think most of the businesses which we invest in, I can go through each and, each and every one of them, that's the story. That's why we're able to buy those businesses because, because it is misunderstood initially. Now it's very well understood. Now, if you look at it, its valuation is 30 times. So the market is, you know, market is efficient. Once they figure out, it's not misunderstood now. People who know Metal Toledo, they know it's doing very, very well and it's a great business to own. Yeah. Um, but when I invested, it was a small cap. Not a lot of people know. And that's when you need to find these businesses because they're small cap. But if they say they're number one and number two for 75 years, they must be doing something right. And then you look at the numbers and you say, okay, this is great. So most of these businesses are misunderstood when they're smallest size. Um, but now I think it's it's caught in there. That's how we managed to do well and give that kind of return. Um, 
would, would you say that um, like you, uh, you know, if the market were to fall for reasons that were, you know, more macro oriented, which, which I guess could happen. I mean, like, would you buy more or do you feel like at this point you're, it's a big enough part of your portfolio that you just sort of sit on it and. Yeah, no, we would buy, I would definitely buy more if it, it fell considerably because right now the valuation um, doesn't make it a low risk in terms of valuation for us to invest in. So if the valuation falls to 2022 times, I'll probably buy more. And uh, we still, it's it's a big portion of our portfolio, as you said. Um, so we will be a little wary, but definitely will buy if it falls a lot. What was the, I'm just curious, when you first bought it, because I just want to kind of tap into your mindset at that time. Um, you know, if, if you were to, I guess, what, what was misunderstood then? Like, did people just not, because the multiple was also a lot lower, right? I think you said you bought it when it was trading at closer to 15 times, was it? 18 times, times, yeah, I think. Eight, eight, 18 times, I think. Um, so look, that was a that was a very strange time. It was, you know, it was the recession, 2009-10 time recession. So every company was undervalued that time. And if I was doing, if I had a lot of money, I would invest in a lot more businesses then. Um, um, so it yeah. was, I think, one quarter they did not do that well in terms of um, their revenue growth. And um, the valuation fell up, fell a lot. And if you think about it, 17 times is also not that low. Uh, so it was, so the market, I don't agree with misunderstanding the people who understood, but I could get a call with a company which is running a small fund. So obviously um, not a lot of people were buying anything that time. Um, so, yeah. And interestingly, not a lot of people follow them. And that's another dif differentiation for us. We can do what a lot of big funds can't do. Uh, we can look for these very, very good businesses and then um, you know, commit to investing in them while they will think it's a risk because nobody yeah. else is. So, doing so it. back so, when you uh, when you first invested in Metler, what, do you remember what level of sell side coverage they had? Very little, like two or three analysts covering it. I think even less than that. That's why I had to get a call with them to understand them better more. Very and and it it was a three billion dollar business. It was it's right. big, but it's still small, and the revenue was about one point five billion across the world. And a lot of people would have said even then that, oh, it's not really, you know, what's the point of buying a lab, an industrial um, device instrument company. But when I looked at it, I'm like, wow, this is a great brand. It's a brand. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the 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 skeptic would say, OK, weighing scales seem commoditized. It's like that feels like a commodity product. You, your, your point would be that. Uh, those scales are more accurate than competitors. So I'm assuming you maybe did some work on reaching that conclusion that, you know, there, there, there was an accuracy difference between their products and their competitors. Um, but I, I think that would have been the, the, a skeptic would just say, well, how, how, why should a weighing scale product uh, deserve a, a premium multiple? And getting comfortable around that, I think may have been it, part of the for me, as I took you through the story, it's all about uh, building that competitive moat. So the, it is happening because of what the customers are looking for. 
So in their case, yes, it's a, it can be commoditized product and it's not just weighing scale. They also do a lot of lab products. It is commoditized. You can get a pipette from anywhere else. Um, but for a customer, they are looking for something which is extremely accurate and it's not costing them too much. They don't, so in even in low cycles, they would still go for a better product than something which is not so good. And I just don't go for one or two years performance, right? I'm looking for a long period of time. The performance, yeah. they got listed in 1999. And since then we have the data. So I'm looking at that data, how they managed to grow. Yes, a lot of general investors would not know this business, but a lot of industrial and lab customers would know that's the, know, know the brand brand. Um, it sounds like they, it sounds like the way you're, it sounds like you're describing them like maybe they're the Rolls Royce of you yes, know weighing scales exactly. and, and, and yes. but they're priced I, more like they're they're yes. they're the Rolls Royce but they're priced like maybe uh, a BMW or uh, a Lexus or something as opposed to uh, you know I don't <laughs> want to I don't want to talk about cars I don't want to talk about you know how it is <laughs> my, my, my point know, is they, that they they, they, they they provide the best product they don't charge. They don't charge a huge premium for the quality they provide is what i'm saying what i'm trying to get at well no 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 they do charge a lot of premium that's why they are their operating margin is 35 percent, which is huge right so they charge a lot of money but the customers are ready to pay that price because for them the value add is way more than the price they're paying of course you have to be price competitive um, in a general scenario, you can't be so overpriced, especially in emerging markets. They definitely do the pricing right. But the customers do not mind paying 10, 15% extra for a great brand because that brand means that their process um, would be more accurate. They would save some money and they would not have any downtime because they have this company which is providing service to them. So all those stuff, you know, total um, value to the customer is way more than the price they're paying. Maybe they're paying premium. I think they're paying premium for the products. Otherwise, not a lot of businesses can have that kind of gross margin and growing, expanding gross margin over time. So they're really smart how they do it. And they would add an additional uh, feature to a pipette. And then suddenly they'd probably charge a little more because the customer says, yes, we want this, you know, they, we want to not have wastage in liquid dispensing or whatever. So they, they would figure out, they figure it out, right? Really interesting, Roly. I I, um, I I mean, personally love hearing about companies that you can hold forever. And uh, yes. that's sort of the, that's sort of the holy grail, you know, <laughs> all long-term investors, um, you know, we're all looking for those kind of names. It's just finding right. those companies at the right price. Um, yes. And we recently, we had a very interesting conversation with Manish Babrai, who was talking about the same, you know, this, this exact topic, you know, investing in companies you can invest in forever. And one of the questions that I asked him, and I'm, I'm gonna ask you is, you know, how, how, how do you know when to sell um, a company like, like this that you could in theory hold on forever? I mean, they're, they're, at some point you, you know, you might be presented with, um, an opportunity to sell, what would that look like for you? Um, yeah, so, you know, if the valuation is too high, maybe, even though, even then I would probably not sell it. Um, uh, you know, it could be going up to 50 times or 60 times, probably earnings, great, I would make some money. Um, again, I would say if it becomes really a very large cap and I see um, the earnings per share not growing at the rate probably for next three years, 
I'm thinking probably even then I won't sell. <laughs> so I think the time I would sell is when I really see the business becomes risky. So if you talk to me 10 years from now and say, has metal business become more risky? And I say, yes, they become aggressive in buying everywhere and they're, they're not allocating their capital well, their return invested capital has dropped to 20%. That's the time I would sell it. Because it's very difficult for me to predict, to kind of speculate what's going to happen in the future. If it is a $100 billion company, am I going to sell just because it's $100 billion? I don't think so. So I don't know if I can I can answer your question because it, 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 I mean, but there is there there's a there's there there must be some. You're saying it's almost like there's no earnings multiple that you would sell. There must be some earnings multiple that you would probably get uncomfortable holding the name at. No, or I mean, I mean, unless the growth just skyrocketed. Uh, is you know, is there a point at which you you would start to feel a little wheezy and maybe trim your position? It's really rare to find a high quality business. Let me tell you that. Yeah. And you know, and it's a mistake to sell them, which I have learned over time. Um, so yeah. I don't know. I will see. <laughs> I Love it. That's, that's what I wanted to hear. Um, you, you're, you're testing me, but I really don't want to sell it. It's like, you know, you want to do that. No, no, no. I, 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 I appreciate think about it. If one it doesn't do well and it's a part of portfolio see i run a fund i'm not just buying one business so yes it might not do well for next two three four years which you know it didn't do very well last year as a company um but it's a great business you don't want to sell a business it can it's just as i said ceos is a risk you know um change of strategy is a huge risk but if they fundamentally keep doing what they're doing it is it, there is a there's no limit. They have such a huge, in, you know, market to operate in. They can keep keep doing that. Even really, in India, is, you know, if, is... you, if you go to India and go and check out, you know, you'll find in a small lab a metal pipette, maybe in a school, which is great. And there's thousands and thousands of schools like that. So, I, this is a uh, this is a really interesting discussion. And the next time I go to India, I'm going to be keeping my eyes out for metal Toledo scale. Told me one of my investors told me he was so happy. He was like, "Wow, I found a metal balance in this small lab in India." I'm like, "Great." That's that's <laughs> the best challenge. The distribution network, and then this another investor of mine. He went to a when I initially bought. He lives in Singapore, so he went to the he found in the airport. So the airport uh, balance. It is a metal balance. That's a great channel check. <laughs> um, really, I think we can end it on that note. Uh, really interesting discussion. I, you know, I, again, you. I, I think philosophically, um, there's so much to, to learn from people like you who've kind of been in the same, the same business for, or the same equity for now over 10 years. And you've kind of seen, seen the ups and downs and still managed to hold on tight. So, um, you know, love that, love that sort of tenacity and, and, um, Thank you. you know, adherence to your, your sort of value investing philosophy, Great. you know, uh, sort of beliefs. So thanks again Great. for spending time with us. We'll, uh, we'll Thank certainly so follow much. up. Hopefully we can, we can chat about some other names in your portfolio in the future. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I re really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.